Welcome to Making a Scene, an Esplanade podcast about how art gets made. Even as we try to make sense of the great disruptions unleashed by COVID-19, art is still being made. I'm Edith Podesta, a theatre maker and Associate Artistic Director of Young and Wild, the youth division of Singapore theatre company Wild Rice. Today, we'll be talking about how artists throughout history have grappled with the trauma, isolation, and the revelations of outbreaks. Joining me in this conversation is Harish Sharma, the resident playwright of theatre company The Necessary Stage. And Paul Ray, formerly artistic co-director of Spell 7, previous theatre studies lecturer at the National University of Singapore. And today, Paul's joining us from Melbourne, where he's now associate professor of theatre studies at the University of Melbourne. I wanted to start by asking how everyone's doing at the moment. Any updates on life under lockdown? Hi, everyone. Hi, Edith. Hi, Paul. Nice to hear from you. It's been fine so far. We are a bit disappointed because some of our shows have been cancelled. And I think that the arts community in Singapore, you know, we have been in talks with one another about how we can make things better, especially for freelancers out there. We've been in talks with the National Arts Council about what the future holds. And um, and it's, it's coming along. I mean, you know, we still have a lot of uncertainty, but I think that I see a lot of positivity, a lot of people helping each other out, whether you're a you know, big theatre company, small theatre company, a freelancer, the Esplanade, the Singapore International Festival of Arts. I see a lot of people, you know, really trying their best to support one another during this time. Yeah. And how are you, Paul? How's everything in Australia? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Yes, it's obviously been pretty quiet and um, I haven't been very far from my house for quite a long time. Uh, but as lockdowns go, lockdowns go, it has not been onerous, though, um, uh, as Harish um, explains about the Singapore uh, scene that the same is uh, true for the Australian scene. A lot of people lost a lot of work very quickly. And um, since then, those of us who are lucky enough to remain in secure employment, at least for now, have been trying to work out what we can do uh, to help support people through this very difficult time for them. While researching into art and outbreaks, I found out that as we've gone into self-isolation, adult fiction sales have dropped by 21%. But it's interesting to note that pandemic fiction is getting a boost. For instance, sales of the 1947 novel The Plague by French writer Albert Camus have more than tripled. Camus' novel provides a guide for living amid a pandemic, exploring what it is to be human and what crisis does to our humanity. I wanted to begin this conversation by looking at how outbreaks have affected art and artists historically. The 1918 influenza pandemic, commonly known as the Spanish flu, infected one-third of the world's population. Among those infected were Franz Kafka, Georgia O'Keeffe and Walt Disney. Poet and playwright T.S. Eliot caught the Spanish flu in December of 1918, and during his recovery he wrote The Wasteland. W.B. Yeats wrote the poem The Second Coming while he watched helplessly as his pregnant wife struggled to fight off the virus. And writer Virginia Woolf understood as well as anyone the long-term effects that viruses could wreak on bodies and on societies. Her mother died of influenza and Woolf herself came down with the disease about half a dozen times between 1916 and 1925. 
On the second page of Wolfe's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, set in 1923, a neighbour of Mrs. Dalloway's observes that she has grown very white since her illness. And in the next paragraph, we learn that her heart had been affected by influenza. The life of legendary playwright William Shakespeare was shaped by the bubonic plague. The theatre historian J. Leeds Barrell notes that in the years between 1606 and 1610, London theatres were only open for a total of nine months during those four years. So when Haresh and Paul, you spoke about the closing of theatres and how that's affecting actors and theatre makers at this time, it's stunning to me that we're going through the same thing in 2020 that Shakespeare went through in the 1600s. And I think it's been of great interest for a lot of people that Shakespeare wrote and produced some of his greatest plays in lockdown, from Macbeth and Anthony and Cleopatra to The Winter's Tale and The Tempest. Columbia University professor and author James Shapiro notes that although people died in all kinds of ways in Shakespeare's plays, nobody ever dies of plague. It's just taboo, he says. So the few times when he does mention the plague, mostly in his tragedies, it would have hit Shakespeare's audience with incredible force. Shakespeare wrote 37 plays and used the plague as a plot device only once. In Romeo and Juliet, the letter about Juliet's plan to pretend to have died doesn't reach Romeo because the messenger, who was meant to deliver the letter, is forced into quarantine before he can complete his mission. And spoiler alert, it's a very fatal plot twist. Before COVID-19, the most culturally influential virus in recent history was the global HIV-AIDS epidemic outbreak in the 1980s, which led to a huge amount of art production. In 1999, Harish Sharma and the Necessary Stages artistic director, Alvin Tan, collaborated with Paddy Chu, the first man in Singapore to publicly speak about his personal experience living with HIV-AIDS. The result was a play called Completely Without Character. This is Paddy, performing it on stage in 1999. I decided then and then that I wasn't going to stay home and die. I was going to go out, fight for my life, fight for everything I believed in. I was not going to stay home and wither away and die at so many other things. Haresh, I wanted to ask how the collaboration with Paddy on Completely Without Character came about. Well, thank you, first of all, Edith, for that very exciting and detailed uh, background. I didn't know a lot of what you were sharing with us, um, especially about T.S. Eliot as well. Um, and I, I quoted him in some of my plays and, you know, like Data Dayat Vam Dam Yata Shanti, 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 which ends, you know, um, the wasteland. Um, and it makes, kind of makes a bit more sense now, I understand. Um, I mean, the play with Paddy um, just happened, you know, in 1998, Alvin and I were working on another play where we were interviewing people um, and Paddy was one of the people that we interviewed. And it was just like a five, 10 minute interview for a multimedia segment. And at the end of it, he said, you know, why are you just interviewing me for like five, 10 minutes? I can do an entire play about, you know, being HIV positive. And so we were like, okay, let's, let's you know, talk about it and, and let's begin work on it. And Paddy was very dramatic, um, 
very theatrical, but he's he wasn't an actor. Um, he worked in entertainment. He was a flight attendant, um, and he was also the first Singaporean to come out um, publicly with his HIV status. So that really um, got things going in terms of his life in the public arena, as well as in terms of the play and how it got promoted along the way as well. Because his coming out was in December of ninety eight, and then um, a few months later we staged the play. So it was a verbatim play. And Alvin and I spent months with Paddy, you know, sitting with him in his flat, um, interviewing him, talking to him, and basically just getting to know him. Um, I didn't know who he was. I had never met him before um, this project. And, um, and from there, I kind of created a script. And then we rehearsed rehearsals and we created the play. Um, and it was a very interesting project in a sense because, you know, we had never done anything like that before to tell someone's story, you know, through verbatim with Paddy as the performer. He was alone on stage for two hours and we also incorporated a Q&A segment in the middle of it. You know, we worked with um, Action for AIDS and they, you know, got us um, a few volunteers who were in the audience to pass around the mic so that they could ask um, petty questions. We worked with this organization called Sintercom and they were able to set up like a computer IRC. <laughs> Remember back in the day, internet relay chat. And so people could log in um, to this chat room from you know, around the world and ask petty questions. And, you know, Paddy was petty. He was like a, a, a super trooper. He performed. He answered questions. He did whatever he could do, even though he was literally dying. You know, even uh, a week before, a couple of days before the show, you know, he went to see his doctor and the doctor was like, you know, your blood counts are low. Your platelets are, you know, not in a good state. Really, you should not be doing this show. You should be, you know, uh, resting in the hospital. And Paddy was just like, yeah, make sure you come and wear something nice for opening night, you know. Um, <laughs> so um, he just refused to, to listen to anyone and he just performed. And after every performance, after every curtain call, he would take three steps back and collapse. The moment the lights would go off, he would just collapse and somebody backstage, a stagehand, a stage crew would literally carry him down the staircase of the old drama centre into the dressing room. Um, and, and, you know, it, it changed my life. I mean, I find it difficult talking about it because I feel sometimes that when I'm talking about it, I'm kind of like, you know, taking advantage of him in some way because he's not around to give me permission to say, hey, Harish, you know, talk about me, I don't mind. But I kind of feel that, you know, it's okay. Yeah, I think... In some of my research, I was looking at how playwrights have used AIDS to talk about other things. There's this book by Jennifer Wright, the author of Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them. And I would consider Paddy Chu one of those heroes. She writes, good writing about a plague is never just about the plague. It's about other social issues made manifest in times of plague. 
and she cites Angels in America by Tony Kushner. She says that play is not just about AIDS. It's not even just about how Reagan responded to AIDS. It's about how Americans deal with the idea of their own mortality. And I think you talking about completely without character will inspire a lot of people to speak about a virus that continues to ravage so many people around the world. I wanted to ask if there were any challenges or fears that you faced working on the piece, especially during a time when the stigma surrounding AIDS in Singapore was very potent. Internally, we did not have any um, challenges besides the usual putting up a play and the drama associated with it, you know, the usual things, um, because we were very um, ambitious as well. It wasn't just one man standing there talking. We had multimedia, we had slide projections, we had like homemade videos that we were projecting. And as I mentioned, there was the whole Q&A segment. So there was a lot of people helping, helping behind the scenes to make things happen. And Paddy himself was very, very um, hands-on. He wanted to see what slides we were putting up. He wanted to know what kind of costumes you wanted him to put on. So all that was fine, you know, it's just the usual behind-the-scenes rehearsal process for a theatre production. What was interesting was that, as you mentioned, this whole idea of HIV and AIDS in Singapore was still very new and there was still a lot of discrimination. It was still seen, you know, in terms of uh, it being uh, a gay disease, uh, people didn't want to talk about it, and the fact that it was 1990. 899 before someone actually came out with his HIV status shows how long we had to wait before there could be some kind of real public education about this illness. And we even had calls from the public, you know, um, who wanted to book tickets, but they said, oh, but we don't want to sit in the front row in case he, he when he's talking, his saliva hits us. You know, and they're like, can, can you get me other seats because uh, the other sh- seats are sold out and we, there are only front rows available and we don't want to sit in the front row. You know, and we had audiences like that. And of course, Paddy being Paddy would say, these are exactly the kind of people who need to come and watch the show because mm-hmm. they don't have that understanding or that um, empathy or maybe they just need to listen to his story and they will be in a better position to understand and he was totally fine at being judged. I mean, even during the Q&A. Now, this is the Q&A, okay? They have two microphones mm-hmm. in the top, two microphones in the bottom. If you are afraid to ask a question, write it down. My beautiful Caroline here will read it out. Okay, now, please, don't be so Singaporean. Don't be so polite. If you have something to say, I mean, say it. If you think I deserve this disease and you want me to know it, I want you to say it. Let it off your chest. Upstairs, you start thinking your question. Ask me anything you like. Don't be shy. My favorite color, my favorite dish, it's okay. But I would like very much for all of you who are here today to ask questions pertaining to the AIDS issue. It is information that is very vital for all of you. If you have no information on this disease, you will have children, you have people you love. They may want to ask you about it. You can ask me now, and I'll try to give you all the answers I know. People were 
judging him all the time because they wanted they they kind of knew how he got it you know i mean so there was always that kind of blame factor and when he said when somebody asked him do you still have sex there was once during a q and a and he said no i don't have sex anymore but i have a lot of videotapes you know <laughs> and <laughs> some people um gasp and said oh no but you know i think you should stop with the videotapes now as well So there's just it was just such an exciting time there were so many different types of responses the play brought up we only performed for 6 nights and then on the last show um after the last show Paddy was admitted to hospital and then 3 months later he died you know some american social commentators who lived through the hiv aids crisis in the 80s are, are now noticing a parallel to the initial reluctance or Uh, perceived hesitation by the current American government in addressing the novel coronavirus today. Do you see any parallels with the current COVID-19 situation in terms of surfacing hidden prejudices in the community? You read about it every day. You see different societies, different countries are going through different um issues and challenges and there is a sense of discrimination that's taking place, you know, in in some way everywhere you know, you you read about chinese people in the states who are being harassed because you know a lot of people there think that the disease came from china and it's their fault somehow or other um and of course there are instances of medical um health workers who you know people and now well we clap for them and we sing songs but there are also people who don't want to sit next to them or you know pick them up in their taxis and all that and of course in singapore particularly um there is the issue with the um, migrant workers and that has surfaced a lot of um i guess hidden prejudices that we have and which a lot of people don't think about or don't want to think about you know and suddenly when the numbers start getting higher and higher and then everybody <clears throat> sorry everybody is forced to think about it and start to kind of think in terms of like oh maybe they should be in a better you know housing and and it's like yeah you know ngos and and activists have been saying that for decades and nobody even you know cared about it and now everybody has a point of view about the condition of the dormitories of the migrant workers and i'm i'm i guess i sound a little bit bitter is because you know i i know them i work with them you know i am close to the the theater com- theater group but it's migrant theater and we con- you know collaborated on shows together so it's kind of personal as well um so there are a lot of very different responses and i think that some of the worst in people start to come out in in these kinds of situations of course it's not the same um to a certain extent um compared to hiv and aids in 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 the 80s and 90s but i still think that there's a lot of ways that we can try to understand different people and what they are going through you know and i think that like with paddy for example and that's why i think theater is really really great um and important because we give these stories a platform so that people can see that they're not you know um there there are a lot of things that they um misjudge or they have misconceived ideas about um and even for myself that's why i like interviewing people i like doing device plays and 
you know, collaborating with people because only when you hear their stories do you begin to understand them and their situations and their families and their backgrounds so much better. Thank you so much for that. I don't think you sound bitter at all. I think you sound passionate and I'm so glad to have someone like you in our industry. In 1989, Susan Sontag penned a work of critical theory titled AIDS and Its Metaphors. In writing that work, Sontag wished to exorcise the notion of AIDS as a plague, in contrast to the word epidemic, the more neutral term she preferred. Her principal objection to the plague metaphor is that it represents the disease as a punishment, or a visitation inflicted not only on the ill, but on society at large. Paul, I was wondering, have you been struck by other works that have addressed the AIDS crisis or have employed the plague as a metaphor? Uh, in preparing for this conversation, I was thinking back to my own experiences as a kind of, you know, 17 to, to early 20s year old in the late 80s through uh, the mid 90s and what kinds of works um, were sort of formative for me in a sense, precisely because they sought to find ways to address these these challenges. For me, uh, growing up in a small town in England, um, the films of Derek Jarman uh, were incredibly important. He was an experimental theatre maker, a gay man uh, with um, who was HIV positive and who charted really his, his own death um, from the AIDS virus uh, through a series of, of very touching and, and, and beautiful, but also very formally experimental and quite challenging films like The Garden from 1990, which he just sort of shot in and around this cottage he had in this very strange part of England uh, on a kind of pebble beach near a, a nuclear processing plant uh, called Dungeness. It's a re I've visited it subsequently. He kind of tended this beautiful little garden outside of this house. And um, uh, it's just a kind of really kind of striking landscape within which he filmed these hallucinatory uh, scenes kind of into... Um, interweaving um, images of him uh, uh, visibly uh, unwell, kind of like writing in his diary, sitting in his cottage with these images of all these kinds of beautiful men and this kind of dreamlike states in the sea. And um, subsequently in 1993, he made a film called Blue, uh, mm. which charted his experience of, of going blind in the advanced stages of the disease. And the screen is literally just... Blue. It was essentially a series of voiceovers over this blue screen, and uh, was a kind of major cultural moment in the UK when it was it was screened on TV. It's <laughs> just this blue screen, uh, and and every was everyone sort of sat down to watch this uh, blue screen, or indeed to decorate the screen, as I recall doing with my friends as we watched it. I think the other distinctive thing about the AIDS period in the US, uh, but not only in the US, was the ways in which theatre bled into protest and public protest became highly theatricalized as a result of uh, activist groups such as ACT UP with their famous slogan, silence equals death, resulting in these very kind of like visual, visible, interventionist kinds of protest strategies um, that take many different forms in how to survive a plague 
um, a striking documentary that came out a couple of years ago um, based on a book by David France of the same title. There's a remarkable moment where an AIDS activist, Bob Ravsky, gives a, um, a eulogy to another activist who had uh, recently died, Mark Fisher, filmed in the early 90s, um, uh, during a period when these activists were um, pursuing what they called... Um, uh, political funerals. That's to say that they would they would deliberately um, parade open caskets through the streets um, as as a protest strategy against the government's uh, inaction or indifference or indeed um, a kind of willed homophobia around AIDS treatment and their unwillingness to address it as a public health. Uh, problem and to continue to perceive it primarily in moral terms, something that certainly was not limited to the US in, in that regard. And Bob uh, Ravsky's speech, which is available on YouTube, uh, is just this uh, remarkable kind of denunciation of George Bush, who was the president at the time. It begins, he says, he, meaning Mark Fisher, asked for this ceremony not so we could bury him but so we could celebrate his undying anger. This mm -hmm. isn't a political funeral for Mark. It's a political funeral for the man who killed him and so many others and who is slowly killing me, whose name curls my tongue and curdles my breath. George Bush, we believe you'll be defeated tomorrow. There was going to be an election because we believe there's still some justice left in the universe and some compassion left in the American people. But whether or not you are here and now standing by Mark's body, we put this curse on you. And that's just the beginning of this remarkable speech, which brings me to tears. Every time I watched it, I was just watching it and transcribing that before our conversation. <laughs> it's like the tears were streaming down my cheeks. When I was thinking about uh, going back to that, I was like, oh, I've got to go back and check out that Shakespeare speech that guy, that guy gave at the funeral uh, because uh, in my mind he was like directly citing Shakespeare and um, and when I got to it I was like oh no it's it it's it's entirely his own and yet it has that kind of the contours of of some powerful Shakespearean uh, monologue or eulogy and of course let us not forget in Romeo and Juliet Mercutio says a plague mm. on both your houses right that's his curse upon upon the Montagues and the Capulets so the, the, these sorts of energies, these performative energies, carry over into the into the real world, as it were, um, and they continue to reverberate and be revisited. I loved how you talked about how art affects the real world and how the real world affects art. In 2006, here in Singapore, playwright Alfian Sa'at debuted his play Homesick, a play about an unravelling Singaporean family that's set during the 2003 SARS outbreak. What were your thoughts on this work at the time and revisiting the play for this podcast? Yeah, it's a it is a fun play in a way. <laughs> I mean, the, in a sense, the kind of the family the family drama of uh, it is is a is a quite a common sort of um, uh, trope in Singapore theatre. This is kind of like under one roof meets the the SARS uh, uh, crisis uh, with a number of the same actors. We should add, um, and uh, it tells the story of a family uh, that is sort of like. Um, 
rather far flung in their ordinary lives who find themselves flung together by the illness of the the patriarch who's an absent presence throughout the throughout the play and then subsequently um find themselves under quarantine and therefore kind of forced into uh, proximity where they inevitably must reckon uh with all sorts of kinds of um uh, lingering resentments family secrets um uh, dreams and aspirations feelings of belonging and betrayal what you mentioned about um sontag's treatment of illness as a metaphor inevitably starts to kind of circulate through their conversation as well so there's a there's a there's a character called daphne who in today's terms we would call a sort of a social justice warrior and she has this sort of analysis of sars where she says do you know what sars is it's literally the bug in the system a transnational virus disease doesn't discriminate we've created these monstrous inequalities in the system the virus equalizes it back which is a nice line but uh, as we've come to learn from covid-19 well in a sense uh, not all pandemics are are created equal or equalize in the same ways and if sars did have that kind of social effect of being relatively undiscriminating then i think as harris has already pointed out one of the most distinctive things about covid-19 given the extent of its economic impacts is that in fact it's heightened certain kinds of inequalities we've already been experiencing just listening to you it, it keeps on coming back to me this idea of the home being a microcosm and the personal being political I wanted to ask you about your very personal connection with the 2009 novel influenza H1N1 virus. You wrote an essay titled Pigs Might Fly: Dance in the Time of Swine Flu about the pandemic's relationship to contemporary global networks including arts networks. Can you talk more about that and if your thoughts on disease as a biosocial event have evolved in the light of the current coronavirus pandemic? Yes, I mean I I should say up front that I was not profoundly affected by the um by the so-called swine flu. I did get swine flu and I got it while I was um performing a show um tree duet um uh which is by Spell 7 and we were doing it in um Edinburgh at the festival as part of a kind of Singapore showcase during that swine flu period I also had the opportunity to travel to China a place uh, we were still able to travel at the time and um and to observe a dance making process at the Beijing Dance Academy it really crystallized for me around this particular interpreter who um who asked uh, the the person leading the project for hand sanitizer because they felt that as interpreters that's to say um interpreting between the dancers and the choreographer in a particular um dance making project the dancers being chinese and the choreographer being from britain that she the interpreter was particularly vulnerable to infection and it's like for me it kind of crystallized this moment so i thought oh, yes you know, this idea of the intermediary um as being uh, 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 in this kind of distinct position and this sense that the whole you know that the whole environment the air between us is the charged thing one of the texts you referenced in your essay was by french director artaud titled theater and the plague For those of us who aren't familiar with Artaud, can you share a bit about who he was and the argument in the essay? 
sure. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I preface this by saying it's never easy entirely to summarize Arto, and in fact, it's all too easy to caricature him. But uh, I'll have a go. So um, he was a Frenchman, born in 1896. He started to kind of have this vision of a, of an alternative form of of theatre to the one that he knew and loathed from a French uh, tradition. And so he started to formulate these ideas, which would eventually be published in this short but very influential book called The Theatre and Its Double, published in the late 30s. And that book opens with this remarkable, bizarre essay called Theatre and the Plague, which for the first 15 pages or so is just this kind of detailed uh, discussion of the various ways in which plagues kind of ravage the body. And then gradually, progressively over the course of this essay, he sort of draws the two together um, by tracing what he calls the spiritual physiognomy of a disease. And um, and basically his analysis is that the plague is a kind of causes total social breakdown. There's a complete upending of social norms um, and people find themselves um, kind of uh, possessed uh, by, by, by behaviours that they would never ordinarily countenance. Um, and that uh, entirely new ways of kind of being and thinking um, socially are sort of born out of the kind of radically purifying um, experience of the plague. And for and for Artaud, this was exactly what he wanted theatre to be. He had no time for anyone pretending to be someone else in, 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 in anything like the conventional sense of acting. He had no time for conventional narratives or conventional plots or conventional scenery or anything. He sought a theatre that really just kind of like plugged us right in to some very sort of profound and deep and, and often very kinds of dark uh, forces. He says, first of all, we must recognize that the theater, like the plague, is a delirium and is communicative. And so uh, he, he saw the theatre as having this kind of infectious capacity uh, like the plague. And he really, I think the distinctive thing about Artaud is that this is not... Um, a metaphor. This is a prof this is the profound reality that theatre can kind of plug us into. It's like come in from the real world to the theatre, and now you're really going to find out who we are as a species and how cruel uh, we can be. Just in kind of tapping into these kind of primordial forces that we've um, that we've rather banally just kind of smoothed over with what we like to think of as civilization. And so he, he ends off by saying, like the plague, the theatre has been created to drain abscesses collectively. It's a radically purifying act. In closing, I wanted to ask the both of you, Haresh and Paul, uh, what you think artists are going to write about? What themes, what subject matters artists might explore when we come out of lockdown, when COVID-19 settles and the theatres open up again? You know, it's, it's very difficult to think about what to write about while you're going through something like this. I have plays that I have to write for, you know, for next year and the year after, but I can't even begin to think about where it's going to, or how it's going to, you know, incorporate the present or the illness. Um, so it's very, very difficult because we are going through it now, 
we are going through it even to the point where we're not even sure what the future of theatre is going to be like. You know what I mean? Are we going to be able to have performances, live performances? Are we going to be able to have audiences sitting with each other or must all shows in the future be like restricted to like 10 people and you know, uh, actors are not allowed to touch each other. Or So, you know, there are all these things that are still hanging in the air. And it's. I think it will take a bit of time before we think about what the place of the future will be. But I think that, I mean, I look forward to it from an artist slash playwright point of view. Um, and also, you know, in terms of from an audience point of view, I think because there are so many different um, free um, shows that are being you know, shown on Vimeo and YouTube, we are having opportunities to watch theatre and, and performance art from other countries from all around the world, from our colleagues in Singapore. And at least that has brought us a little closer together, you know, and hopefully after... Um, this phase is over whatever the next phase brings we will continue to be closer and even not just with each other as artists but also to the audience and to the communities at large it feels to me like there are also a few things that we have not yet begun to reckon with uh, while the outcome remains still uncertain I was so struck when I was watching um, the video of uh, uh, completely without character. There's a, a remarkable moment where Paddy Chu sits down and, he says, and he, he's just told this kind of rather uproarious story about going out with his friends all day. And then he says, OK, you guys go on and, and, and you know, I'm going home. And he says, sits down and he turns on the TV, he, he recounts and... Um, and watches a TV, a US sitcom, and 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 for him, he says that it's like um, it's full of sort of liveliness and vibrancy, and he, and he looks at the audience and he says, and I looked at it and I thought, the living. He says it so amazingly, the living. And uh, I was like completely sort of brought up short by this. Uh, I think to go back to where what Harish was saying at the beginning of our discussion, I mean, uh, it's remarkable that Paddy Chu kind of put himself out there and up there and, and made himself available for all those questions. But you can tell that the questions are possible because there is a fundamental difference between most people in the audience and him, which is that they are primarily living and he is dying. And, um, and, and it's almost like this voice comes from, from another realm. And uh, it made me think about our experience to date in countries such as Australia and Singapore, especially where we've been very fortunate to have very low death rates by comparison with many other countries, not the least of which is my own, England and um, the US, of course. And so that we, I think that for many people so far, the, the experience of the pandemic has been the experience, an experience for the living, uh, and uh, and 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 in fact the the grief, mourning, the three hundred thousand now dead, as the as the WHO reports today, uh, is yet to kind of register. I think it's because by comparison with something like HIV and AIDS, the 
the deaths are hidden and often quick and we they don't yet have visual form there's a kind of series of silent almost disappearances i think it's just sort of death is not yet present in the in the media in the way that survival has been um and uh and the exceptions are those rather desperate kinds of testimonials and monologues that we're getting from healthcare workers who are of course they're the intermediaries in this case they're the ones who are by far the most vulnerable to infection it feels like there's something yet to be kind of like worked out uh, that one might hope theater makers amongst other artists will give form to somehow in the future and then of course the other dimension of it is that it is overwhelmingly an economic catastrophe and whereas something like SARS or swine flu was let's say social uh, it had direct social impacts but most societies could kind of wear it financially uh, that and and economics is hard to give theatrical form to at the best of times even with the help of of visionaries like Bertolt Brecht telling us how to kind of stage these vast forces rather than simply personal stories how how artists work out how to help us make sense of the economic impact of the pandemic and to work towards um, satisfactory and equitable economic outcomes well, that's a bit hard. It's a bit of a tough one to pin on artists, but uh, but that's, I think, what artists sign up for when they become artists. So good luck to you, artists. Yes, and I think we'll end on that note. Good luck to you, artists, and good luck to you wherever you are listening to this podcast. Thank you, Haresh and Paul, for discussing art and outbreaks on Making a Scene. As we record this, the theatres are still closed and we're very much looking forward to the day when we can once again be in the same theatre together. Making a Scene is produced by Esplanade, Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. Our theme music is More Than We Know from the album Sea Monster by the Steve McQueens, a band supported by the Esplanade under the Mosaic Associate Artists Initiative. Look out for more episodes of Making a Scene at esplanade.com slash offstage. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers. <laughs>